1 Thessalonians 5 today. Um, if you had a hard time finding a parking spot when you got here, that just means I've been gone for three months and I had a lot of material to get through. So, uh, sorry about that. I'm still in preseason form. So, um, my name's Kyle. If I haven't met you, I'm so glad you're here. Uh, if you loved the preaching the last three months, I'm sorry, you got me now. So, uh, but before we dive into the sermon one, I just want to say to the guys who, who filled the pulpit and preached the word, thank you. You served our church well. So can we just say thank you? Now would be a great time if someone wanted to boo for it just to be awkward. But uh, no, our, I'm just so encouraged and reminded that there's, there's nothing magical about preachers. It's just not. There is something amazing about God's word. When we open it, the Holy Spirit who inspired it to be written 2,000 years ago, 3,000 years ago, actually, um, anybody other than an or speak to us through it. And it's amazing. And it doesn't take um, anybody other than an ordinary person filled with the Holy Spirit to just say, and this is what it says. And that's why it's encouraging. So I hope to do that today. Uh, but before we get in that, I just wanted to have a little family chat. Uh, you're like, uh-oh. No, it's, it's, it's all good things. Um, during my sabbatical in the middle of June, our church received a letter, and most of you probably heard about this, but First Presbyterian Church downtown offered to give us their building, uh, which is a pretty crazy thing when you think about it. Uh, if, if you are familiar with this building, this building is about 10,000 square feet. Uh, we can seat 330 people if every seat is filled. Uh, First Presbyterian is 50,000 square feet, so five times the size of this. It seats over 1,000 people. It's got a gym and classroom and fellowship space galore. It's also a block from the new hospital, meaning there's no parking there. Um, but uh, they did sell their parking lot to the city. The city, or Essentia and the city are working on putting together a parking ramp that might actually alleviate that. Why do I tell you this? I tell you this because we are contemplating whether or not to say yes to that, and that being the new home of Rock Hill. So, decision's not made, but I want to bring that up because we need you guys to pray. Now, a little history here. Where did this come from? Actually, we used to meet there uh, about 13 years ago. From 2000, end of 2007 to the beginning of 2010, we met there as a church. It very much shaped our heart and vision as a church. And even as a brand new, young, small church, I started praying, God, would you fill this space with worshipers of Jesus again? Would you fill this place and use this place right in the heart of the city? Uh, and would you give it to us? Now, for 14 years, God said, nope. <laughs> and you know what? That's been just fine. This has been a great home. And it might continue to be our home. And we've planted churches and we've multiplied. And, and uh, they came to us and said, hey, we would like to give you our building. So with that, there are challenges relating to parking. And the next two years would be, uh, I'm not sure we could actually make it work. So if we say yes, it won't be for a while. Uh, the other thing is, um, well, there's a lot of other things. But... To take on a building of that size, you're taking on a significant liability. If the, say, heating system goes out, we're looking at hundreds of thousands of dollars to fix versus 
I think we did this one here for about $40,000. So um, those are the kind of the issues that we're wrestling with, praying through. I wanted to bring that so that I could maybe ask your prayers to become a little bit more urgent. We need to get back to them. Uh, and so we put together a feasibility team to kind of look at the financial implications of it, the long-term, the short-term, those kinds of things. Their work came back that it is financially feasible for us to say yes. The real question now is, should we? And that's not always an easy answer. And so our elders are wrestling with that. We're moving forward in the process with them to kind of negotiate what that actually might look like. But we need you guys to pray. We need you to pray and ask God to lead and guide our leaders clearly. And then from there, our elders will make a recommendation that our church members will vote on uh, if there is a recommendation to move forward. Does that make sense? So, I haven't been here for the last three months. You've heard a little bit, but not much. That's kind of where we're at in the particular process. Um, like I said, I've been praying for this for a long time, but, you know, here's the thing. The answer might actually come back no. It might actually be a bad decision to do that, and uh, we might be out millions of dollars if we were to do so. Maybe so. We just need you to pray and ask God to lead and guide clearly. Now, where we meet is kind of up in the air. What we do isn't. We exist to multiply gospel-centered disciples that bless the city, the region, and the world. We do that by declaring the gospel, delighting in the gospel, and displaying the gospel's implications in our life together. That's what we're always going to be about. So, can I get you to pray? You're like, um, no, I really do need you to pray. Maybe even fast, seek the Lord on it, and would love to hear what you guys think. So, um, Let's pray as we open up God's word. God, thank you for today. Thank you for just the humbling opportunity to be presented with a, a gift like that. Lord, we want to see Duluth and Superior and the surrounding regions worship you. God, we long to see our neighbors and coworkers and family members and friends trust in Jesus and be in a healthy, thriving church. God, we confess that we are not the only ones doing that. And so we ask that you would bless some of the other churches in town. God, would you bless Anchor Point? And would you bless, bless Water's Edge and Hope City Church and Renew Church out, out west and North Bay over in Superior? And God, we ask that you would bless their ministries, that they would faithfully proclaim the gospel and make disciples. And God, we pray that you would move and work in our midst. Would you give us wisdom regarding this potential decision? God, we don't want to do anything that you would say no to, but we want to have faith that you might actually reach this city. So God, would you guide us in that? Now, Lord, as we open up your word, would you speak through me or in spite of me? But would you speak an encouraging word to every single person who's sitting here listening right now? I ask in Jesus' name, amen. Do any of you guys like to work on house projects? Maybe we got some Chip and Joanna Gaines wannabes in the room. Uh, I dabble. I dabble. Um, some of you guys are like, I got a list of house projects about a mile long right now. And now that it's the end of summer, Pastor, you're, you're meddling with this illustration. Um, has that, do any of you ever start projects but not finish them? Yeah, yeah, I got some hands. Thank you for your boldness. Yeah, I see that hand. I see, no. Um, 
I am notorious for starting projects or chores, getting it about 80 to 90% done, and then getting distracted, and the project often sits 80 to 90% finished. In fact, if you don't have a long list of home improvement projects that you're probably working on, either you are incredibly content, and God bless you for that, or you're moving. (laughs) And you finally got it the way that you wanted it so that you could sell it. Um, It's the ongoing joke in the reality business. Have you ever thought about your Christian life this way, as an ongoing project that isn't just started, but one day will be brought to completion? The Bible calls the process of God transforming us more and more into the image of his son, sanctification. And that's simply a theological word that describes the beautiful truth of God not only saving us by grace and forgiving our sin, but then transforming us by grace more and more into the character of his son, Jesus Christ. And this transformation process, depending on where you are this morning, can sometimes be incredibly encouraging and deeply discouraging. I would guess in the room today, we've got people on all points of the spectrum. Some of you guys haven't even seen the process of sanctification start yet because you've never put your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. You've never believed the gospel and received his gift of salvation so that the Holy Spirit now lives in you and is to transform you. And if that's you today, some of this might make sense, some of this might not, but my prayer for you is that you would put your trust in Jesus today and begin this ongoing transformation process that will be maddening and beautiful and that God will bring to completion. Some of you guys today are on top of the world. You're flying high, and sin seems like the most utterly ridiculous thing you could possibly do because you know deep in your soul how much Jesus loves you, and you can't think about wanting to do anything other than what he wants for you. You are so encouraged this morning to gather with God's people and praise him and encourage other believers that they are no longer enslaved to the things that used to keep them bound up. And if that's you this morning, praise God. We have seasons like that where things are clicking and the the joy of knowing the Lord is so sweet and the, the temptation to sin seems to be not existent. If that's you, lean into that and praise God for that. However, there are probably others here this morning that are on the other side of the spectrum. You are tired. You're discouraged. And it's not physical exhaustion that ails you, but a different kind of weariness. A weariness with the world, if you're honest with yourself. A sense that your current life is not how things are supposed to be. An exhaustion over your ongoing sin and brokenness and lack of caring. Now, don't get me wrong, you you love the Lord. You've trusted him. You've committed your life to him. You just feel the deep pain in your bones, a sense of discouragement over the lingering sin that remains, that you're not what you will someday be, that the problems in the world are not just out there, but very acutely in here. And you wonder, is this soul-crushing battle ever going to be over? Are you ever going to be free? 
Are you going to ever stop looking at pornography? Are you ever going to get a rein in on your temper so that it doesn't spill over on the people that you love the most? Are you ever going to be content with the things that you have rather than this constant drive for more as if buying things will make you happy? Will you ever be free of the constant nagging insecurity that plagues you over and over again, even though you remind yourself over and over and over again who you are in Christ and how he views you? Anyone here resonate with us at all this morning? The Apostle Paul could have closed his letter to the Thessalonians in any number of ways, but he leaves them with this encouragement. God's not done with you yet. When you are discouraged and tired in your Christian journey, be encouraged. God will finish his work in you, and God will finish his work in us. Let's read the last five verses of the book of Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians. And especially if you're discouraged this morning, take heart. Now, may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of, the Lord, of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Brothers and sisters, the good news this morning is that God is not done with you, but he will finish his work. When you're discouraged, when you're tired, when you're tempted to despair, you are to be encouraged that the God who began the work We'll see it through to completion in us as individuals and in us corporately as a community. Now, what's amazing about these words is that this final encouragement comes after 10 verses of commands, 10 verses of do this, be this, this is the people that you are called to be. In verses 12 to 22, Paul paints a picture of what a gospel-saturated church culture looks like, what believers in the Lord Jesus Christ who are living under his new kingdom reign do. And he says things like this, honor your leaders and show them proper respect. Live peaceably with each other. Admonish the idle. Encourage the faint-hearted. Help the weak, meaning our response to people shouldn't be universal and the same no matter who they are, but should take into account where their heart is at, and we shouldn't treat everybody the same, but give them what they need. If they are lazy and idle, you are to rebuke them, to exhort them, to admonish them. If they are faint-hearted and weary, you are to encourage them with the words of the gospel. If they are weak or sick, sometimes you just got to help them and carry them for a while. He goes on, be patient with everyone. That's easy, right? Don't return evil with evil, but return evil with good. Rejoice always. Pray continually or without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for our lives. So you want to know what what God's will is for you today? To give thanks in all of your circumstances. Easy. Not easy. Living in a broken world, and yet 
The gospel gives us a different perspective. Do not quench the Holy Spirit, he says, or despise prophecies, but test and discern them so that you can listen to the living, active word and direction of God. Hold fast to what is good and abstain from every form of evil. I mean, come on, the description of life together, gospel culture in those 10 verses is pretty compelling, isn't it? I want to live among those people. I want to experience that. I want to be encouraged by people who are returning evil with good, who are praying all the time, who are rejoicing regardless of the circumstances, who are encouraging me when I need it, who are rebuking me when I need it, who are flat out helping me when I just need some help. Who doesn't find a a longing awakened in their soul to actually think about living like that? But as beautiful as the life pictured there is, it also has the potential to be a little bit discouraging to us, doesn't it? Because when we take stock of our own lives, frankly, we got a lot of work to do. And when we take stock of our life together as a church community, we got a lot of work to do. If we're honest, many of us admit we, we don't live up to that. And we corporately certainly don't live up to that all the time. Sure, there are glimpses of that kind of life and that kind of community, but so often we we fall short of who we're called to be. And so I think it's into that tension that Paul writes these encouraging words, these final words. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful He will surely do it. He will do it. Guys, say it with me now, out loud. I know this is northern Minnesota, but we're going to try this. God's not done with me yet. yet. That was actually better than I thought it would go. Let's say it again. God's God's not done with me yet. God's not done working in me. God is not done working in us. Some of you guys are like, don't encourage him. He'll keep doing this. (laughs) Maybe. We'll see. A little participatory action in the sermon didn't hurt. Some of you guys even woke up. (laughs) Brothers and sisters, when you are discouraged and tired in your Christian journey, be encouraged that God will finish the work he starts. And some of you just need to hear that today. He's going to do that in us, and he's going to do that in us. Now let's talk about pronouns this morning because that seems to be what everybody likes to talk about these days. But maybe not the pronouns you're thinking. The pronoun I want to look at is the word you. In our English language, the pronoun you can mean you singular or it can mean you plural or you all. Or if you're in the South, y'all. Or if you're from the UP, you guys. Okay? (laughs) We often rip Southerners for their butchery of the English language, but in this case, they actually have a word that better encapsulates what's being talked about here. When he says, may God sanctify you completely, it is not the individual form, but rather, may God sanctify y'all completely. May y'all's spirit and soul and body be kept blameless. He who calls y'all is faithful. I would never make it in Texas, would I? Praise God he didn't call me there. 
In each of these occurrences, the plural form of you is intended. That is good news both for us as individuals and for us as a community, that God is going to finish the work in me and you, but he's also going to finish the work in us. And if you're here today, some of you just need to hear that. If you're like me, you're not who you want to be yet. And this church certainly isn't all that it could be. But it doesn't mean that God is done with us. He's still working. And the God who justifies us or declares us right by his grace is also going to do his work of sanctification by that same grace to make us holy and to take on the character of his son, Jesus Christ, to transform us to be his new kingdom people. So who's doing the work of sanctification here? God is. God will do it. He will do it completely. Many of us wrongly think that God saves us by his grace, but then kind of leaves us in our own power to figure the rest out for the Christian life. As if his grace covers over our sins, forgives us, but now we needed the hard work and fix ourselves. See, there's two words that theologians use and the Bible actually uses to describe salvation. Justification and sanctification. Justification is our legal declaration of righteous or not guilty in God's sight because of the sacrificial work of Jesus on the cross. It is a work that he does that we receive, and because of his resume or his record, we are justified or declared righteous in God's sight. We can't add anything to that. We must simply receive it. That's good news. But sanctification, which is also used in the scripture, is the ongoing work or process of being made holy or formed into the image of Jesus Christ so that we look like his children. Brothers and sisters, hear me in this. Sanctification is every bit as much grace as justification is. Sanctification, the process of God making us holy, is every bit as much dependent upon his grace as being declared righteous in his sight is. See, Jesus rose from the grave through the resurrection and to newness of life. So too, we who are in him by faith, this is beautifully pictured in baptism, rise with him to a new kind of life, a resurrected life. Jesus then sends the Holy Spirit to us to convict us of sin, to live inside of us, to give us a new power to transform us, to encourage us, to inspire us, to lead us. And we don't deserve any of it. It's every bit as much an act of grace as his declaring us righteous. Then we who now have the Holy Spirit living inside of us are to listen to him, to trust him, to let him transform us. This is the work work of sanctification. Now, when it comes to this process of God transforming us or sanctifying us, I would say there are two unhelpful extremes that we need to avoid. The first is what I call the white-knuckling approach, and the other, on the opposite end, is to let go and let God approach. You're probably familiar with these, maybe if you don't know those particular terms. But the white-knuckling approach simply repackages religion and moralism, and it works really hard at holiness, but its trust is all in ourselves, self-discipline, self-control, willpower in order to make progress in our holiness before God. 
Now, this approach leads us to two bad places, either to discouragement and despair when we perform poorly or pride when we think we're nailing it. And perhaps you've met both of them. Perhaps you've been both of them at different times. It's not uncommon to be so discouraged that you're still dealing with the same stuff. You worked hard, but it's still there. And you're tempted to despair. Or maybe you've gotten really good at comparing yourself to others. And you're like, at least I'm not like that. On the curve, I'm doing pretty good, I'd like to say. See, this kind of white-knuckled legalism, this sense of, like, it's on me, leads us either to pride, which is the opposite of worship, or despair. Often in reaction to that, there are people be like, we just got to let go and let God do his work. It swings completely in the other direction. It takes no ownership or discipline, but simply assumes Whatever way I drift, it'll be good. God's got it. I don't have to work hard at anything. I don't have to discipline anything myself in any way. I, I don't have to say no to anything challenging. God will just do his work in me. He will just change all my desires, and he'll do so instantly. Now, we're good at deceiving ourselves, really good at deceiving ourselves, one way or the other, or sometimes even both. And typically, whatever approach we're most scared of or we think that's bad, we tend to err on the other side. If I fear legalism and religion and self-discipline, I probably err on the side of laziness and licentiousness. Or if I fear laziness or spiritual sloth, I'll probably find a lot of comfort in strict rules, disciplines, and systems. So if both of those approaches lead us in the wrong direction, what does sanctification actually look like? I would say a more biblical approach would be to use the word participation. What does it mean? It means that we rest in what God has done while striving to become who we now are. If I'm going to make any progress, I need to rest in what God has done for me in Jesus and believe it in the core of my being. I need to purge from my spiritual vocabulary the words earn or rights. I haven't earned anything. I don't have any rights to make demands of God. That is actually the opposite of relating to him on the basis of grace or unmerited favor. And sometimes as Americans, we, we really struggle with this, don't we? We, we? we love this work ethic and the sense of we have rights that we fight for, and sometimes that brings into our spiritual vocabulary a completely wrong way of relating to God. As if somehow, if I string together a bunch of quiet times and do spiritual things, God owes me. Oh, we never say it so blatantly as that, but we think it. We get incensed when God doesn't actually follow through on what we think we've earned or how we think he should be. Or when he demands something of us that seems too big. I have rights, you know. I've been good. I've prayed a lot. I've sought you, I've obeyed your law, God, why? Now, that sounds melodramatic, but don't we all have some version of that that we go to? It's because that's often the default of our hearts. But ra rather, God relates to us on the basis of grace, meaning, based on my performance, it's not going to go well for me. If I get what I deserve, it isn't going to go well. 
But the beauty of the gospel is I get what I don't deserve. Not only does God forgive me of my sins, but all of the things that Jesus has earned, I get in him by grace. My identity is now tied to what he has accomplished and he has done rather than my own resume. That's good news. In order to make any progress in sanctification, I can't forget that. I can't stop believing that. I can't begin to trust in my own ability to do good. I have to rest in that. Does that mean that I just let it all go to the wind then? What does grace-driven effort then look like? See, I think in light of resting in what he has done, we then strive. We participate in this work by training ourselves, by disciplining ourselves like an athlete prepares for a race. I spiritually work out, so to speak, and fuel my body or my spirit for peak performance. Now, can I run a marathon while eating McDonald's? Some of you guys are like, I don't think you can run a marathon. I don't know how to break it to you whether you feel yourself well or not. That's probably true. I could probably walk it, though. I I don't think I could run a marathon in many ways because I haven't trained myself to do that, and certainly my diet doesn't reflect that of a marathon runner. How, then, do I discipline myself and fuel myself for spiritual fruitfulness? Well, I look at the disciplines that God has already given to me And in faith, I do them knowing that I get to meet with him and that he's going to change my desires and that he's going to move in my heart so that I want to obey, so that I want deep down most what he wants. This is the, the, the types of disciplines that move us towards solitude and isolation like Bible reading and prayer, not to score brownie points with God, but to be with him, to hear from him, to know what is close to his heart. But it doesn't stop there. It also moves into corporate disciplines like gathering together and encouraging one another and forgiving one another and helping each other and pointing each other to the goodness of God. So often when we think of spiritual disciplines, we think about a soul solitary person person on their own seeking the Lord in the desert. And while that might be the case sometimes, there's just as many corporate disciplines to gathering, to encouraging, to confessing our sins, to reminding each other of who Jesus is and what he has done that also discipline us and encourage us and fuel us to walk with Jesus. If I were to boil down spiritual disciplines to one thing, it would be this. Filling up my life with the things that fuel my affection for the Lord Jesus Christ and purging my life of things, even good things, that numb my soul to who he is. You guys probably all have some of those things that aren't inherently bad, but they just kind of numb you to what really matters. If that's the case, my, my encouragement to you as a pastor would be you need some personal legalisms to discipline your soul. Now, use that word because legalism has no power to transform you, and they're personal, meaning they're for you, not for everybody. But there might be certain things that you need in your life to discipline you so that you don't forget what really matters. I'll give you an example. Football season is just about to start, and I have an irrational love for the Vikings. The reason it's irrational is because they never actually give anything back. They just break my heart every year. Can I get an amen? No, nobody's given me a name. What, what, is this like the superior contingent here or what? Come on now. 
But there's something crazy that happens during Vikings season, football season, is that I begin to think about football a lot. I begin to listen to news about football, and I always carve out time to watch the game. And you know what? Sometimes I'm more emotionally invested in a dumb game than I am in what really matters. That's the kind of thing that sometimes isn't inherently bad, but can numb my soul to what really matters. Another thing that I have to do is I have to really limit the amount of time that I read novels or stories. Not because they're bad. In fact, I think stories are inherently good. It's how God has created us to think about life and reality. It's just sometimes when I read like a fantasy story, fantasy becomes more compelling than reality to me. I can't put it down. Now, you might not struggle with that at all, but I do. And so I actually have to be very careful about that kind of thing. Why? I discipline myself to keep reality real. I discipline myself. I try to fill up my life with the things that stir my affection for the Lord. And I try to rid my life of the things that actually numb and rob my affection for the Lord. And sometimes that's blatant sin, and sometimes that's good things that become too big. So, in this, in this, and I hope that's practical to you, but I want to come back to where Paul comes back. Here's the encouragement. The work of sanctification, God will do, and he will bring it to completion. Now, what's the scope of this work? It's all-encompassing. May God sanctify you completely. May your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless. There's no area of your life that will remain untouched by God. He will do the work completely so that your whole soul and spirit and body It's not to just create artificial distinctions, but rather to say all of who you are will love God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength. So God's going to sanctify us completely. I'm so encouraged by this reality that God will finish the job. He may not move at the speed that I would like him to. He may not choose all the same projects that would be my priority list, but he will do it. And anything you learn about a a house remodel is that sometimes it gets a lot worse before it gets better. Sometimes you have to strip things down to the studs, and there's dirt, and there's dust, and there's grime all over. But the finished product looks a lot better. Often that's the case when rooting out deep issues of sin in our life. It gets worse before it gets better. How can we be sure he'll finish the job? Simply promises us. Who are we talking about here? This is God. He is faithful. He who calls you is faithful, and he will surely do it. Now, the remaining verses here remind us of all the letters that are written by Paul or John or Peter or James are real-life missions correspondents. No matter how dense they get theologically, we need to remember that they're actually practical for our lives. They're correspondence between real people living out a real mission together. So he says in verse 25, brothers, pray for us. Isn't that interesting in his humility? The one writing the letter is saying, hey, just as I pray for you, try to encourage you, would you pray for us? God's still working in me as well. I need your prayers and your encouragement. It, it shows us that the posture of this is one of humility. We're all works in progress. 26, greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. Now, in northern Minnesota, we get to this, and there's some of you guys that are already getting the weirds. You're like, I do not want to go to a church where people will pop my individual bubble like that. 
greet each other with a holy kiss. Let me just say, northern Scandinavian culture does not always have a corner on the market of what is right. There's nothing sexualized or effeminate about this kiss. Rather, you could translate it, greet each other with a culturally appropriate warmth, which in northern Minnesota is probably not a kiss. But I get this picture of of an Italian father welcoming his son, saying, my son! Right? It's a very warm and inviting greeting. What is that saying to us? It means that the nature of the gospel changes the way that we relate to each other. We're actually family now. And with it, we should relate to each other with the warmth of family. Now, you don't need to go kissing each other or creating all kinds of issues, but there should be a genuine sense of when you come here, this is the most welcoming place in the Twin Ports. When you see people that have been united into a family with you by the gospel, you should think of them like family. And you should be glad to see them. I put you under oath, he says, before the Lord, have this letter read to all the brothers, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Now, why such a formal plea to read it publicly? I don't know if there were some who were trying to hide his words, but I think here's the implication. These words are for everyone in the church, so make sure to read them to everyone. It encourages us that the work of the church is not just for a select few, but for all of the church that's been united by the gospel and empowered by the Holy Spirit. There's a broad sense of ownership here that if you are a Christian, you are a minister of the Lord Jesus Christ, and so you need to hear what he has to say. You have a vital role to play in the advancements of God's work here on earth. I think that's a message we all need to hear rather regularly, right? So as we close, I want to just get really practical with two questions. Being encouraged that God will do the work. He's not done with you, and he's not done with us. Where do you still want God to sanctify you as an individual? As we've been talking, is there anything that the Holy Spirit has brought to mind for you saying, hey, I want you to grow here. I want to do this work in you. Maybe it's just something that over the years you've made peace with. Possibly even something that you've begun to give up hope about. Maybe you say things like, I'm just not a very patient person. Or I just have this low-grade anger all the time, and I tried to deal with it, but it's just there. Or I was wounded at a really young age, Pastor Kyle, and I just don't trust people. That's who I am. No, it's not. In fact, there's one who speaks a more powerful and better word as to who you are, and his name is Jesus Christ. The power of the gospel is that what he has done is now for us becomes our resume, becomes our identity. And you know what? God speaks a better word over us than we often think about ourselves, doesn't he? Praise God that our identity is not dependent upon how we feel or how worthy we think we are or whatever our desires are. Our identity is rooted in what God has to say about us. And if we are in Christ, it's some pretty awesome things. You're mine, my son, my daughter. Heir of the kingdom. Loved, forgiven, valuable, beautiful, worthy. Not because we performed, but because Jesus has in our place. 
Maybe the message is on repeat. I've tried to quit porn before, but I keep coming back. I don't know if there's hope for me. I've tried to quit prescription painkillers, but I've grown so dependent upon them, I can't think about my life without them. I'm done fighting for my marriage. They're never going to change. I've tried to get over my anxiety, Pastor Kyle. It just doesn't ever seem to get better for any lasting period of time. I did this, or I've tried this, or whatever it is that just seems to be that besetting reality in your life. And, and the temptation you hear in the midst of this is like, it's not going to get any better. This is just who I am. No, it's not. May the God of peace sanctify you completely. He who called you is faithful. He will surely do it. That's good news. And maybe you're just at a spot where you're stuck. We have this thing that we started a few months ago called Celebrate Recovery. It meets here every Wednesday night. And it's about people who are recovering from deep, deep wounds and deep issues, chemical dependency, pornography, you name it, we're all recovering from something. When we believe the gospel, it's not like all of our stuff goes away and life becomes easy street. If you're struggling deeply with something, I just want to invite you to come to that. I'd love to talk with you about that. People share their stories and their testimony. We worship God together. We break out in small groups talking about real-life accountability and the struggles of battling whatever particular besetting sin it is. I just want you, and if, if you've never gone, maybe you should just come, see what it's like. Here's the thing. You won't get judgment there. There's no perfect people there. We don't graduate past the gospel. We are who God says we are, but we live into what he says we are. We fight to believe that that's actually true. And so maybe you need to come on Wednesday night and at least see what's going on. Alice is one of the people who leads that. She would love to talk with you afterwards and just share her heart for that particular ministry. Now, I want to close with this question. What does God still want to do to sanctify us as a church community? Spent a lot of time over the last three months thinking about, praying about, seeking the Lord about where we're at as a church during sabbatical. And on the one hand, I have to say, God has done a tremendous work here in this church. Our history is littered with God's stories where he showed up to encourage our hearts, to strengthen our faith, to save those, to transform marriages, to, to, to see people set free from addiction and and in fact, as I look on the last few years, I can see God has brought us through a global pandemic fairly well intact. We didn't have any major splits over the last few years. Our giving didn't dip at all. In fact, it actually went up during this time. We're still preaching the Bible each week and keeping the focus on the gospel, not the Democrat or the Republican Party platform and talking points. Praise God. And yet I'd be lying if I were to say that there aren't things that God still needs to and wants to do in us together as a people. I think in many ways, because of these encouraging things, I think our church has gotten a little comfortable, lacking urgency, treating serving like it's someone else's job, forgetting that many of our family and our friends and our neighbors desperately need Jesus and we're in their lives. I think overall the level of ownership and vision 
and mission for our church has dropped off significantly. The number of people who serve anywhere has never recovered after COVID. I'll just tell you that. In fact, there are some of you who haven't served anywhere for about two years. I don't say that to shame you. Please don't hear that. I say that to encourage you as your pastor that God has poured his Holy Spirit out on you and it doesn't do good things to your soul to let that atrophy. You have gifts and abilities that are needed in the body and I just want to invite you to do that for your joy and for our faith and our encouragement. Uh, Pastor Craig Groeschel said something I thought was pretty profound. He's a pastor of Life Church TV. They developed like that Bible app that almost everybody has on their phone. He said, if you thought it was hard to lead people during a crisis, it's even harder to lead people out of a crisis. And I've been thinking about that for months and months and months, not because you guys are a super hard church to lead, but because in a lot of ways, the, we, we've been in crisis mode for a couple years. And you just think differently in crisis mode, don't you? And there's a crisis du jour every week that we can get all hot and bothered about. But I don't think God wants us to live long-term in crisis mode. I don't think that's actually healthy. I th expectant lives of faith with a sense of urgency. So if you've been around for a while, these three words I use all the time, but they're, they're a great gauge for me on how am I doing and how are we doing. It's urgency, expectancy, and intentionality. Urgency just reminds me that I don't know how many years I have. I don't know what the time left is. And so I should live with a sense of urgency. As we've read in 1 Thessalonians, Jesus will return one day, and we don't know when that will be other than soon. And so there should be an urgency to our corporate life and our individual life together, realizing that heaven and hell are real that Jesus really did die and rise again, and that he is the hope that we have, not only for heaven someday, although that's true, amen, but also for today. And that God has commissioned you, if you are one of his followers, to make disciples, to preach good news. And he's put you in the lives of some people that I have virtually zero credibility with, but you do. And so do you live your life with a sense of urgency? Second, expectancy or faith. Do I expect that God is going to move and work? When we gather together, is the general tenor one of faith that says, I wonder what God's going to do today. I wonder how he's going to move. I wonder who he's going to encourage and touch. I wonder how he's going to use me. I wonder as I'm walking around during or after the service, who I can encourage, who I can pray for. I wonder who I can invite to come because when we gather together, God moves. You know what happens when we begin to think about our gathering like that? It's not, oh, pastor's guilting me to go to church. I know I'm supposed to. Guilt is a terrible long-term motivator. Fairly effective short-term, terrible long-term. We begin to think, you know what? I could go out of town for the fourth time this month, but I don't want to miss what God is doing. I don't want to watch what God is doing on a screen. I want to be part of it. I don't want to just hear about kids trusting in Jesus. I want to actually teach them the gospel downstairs and see it for myself and be used by God to do real things. I don't want to just hear about youth ministry someday. I want to actually use my life to impact teenagers. 
I don't want to just hear about college ministry. I actually want to make a difference in a college student's life. See how it changes? And when I show up and we gather together, God does stuff. There's a sense of it, expectancy. And in that atmosphere of faith, I think God moves even more. He's glorified to do it. Finally, intentionality. All the feels in the world don't matter a hill of beans unless I actually begin to intentionally take charge of my life and make the most important things the most important things. And a lot of times if we do a time audit or we look at where we spend our time or our energy or emotions, it's completely backwards the way that we actually want to. I'll give you an example. I love sports. And I love youth sports. I did them as a kid. I often coach them. Like, and and I'd be like, oh, he's going to rip on youth sports again. But my goodness, it's getting out of control. It just is. It's insane. Even if all of our kids get college scholarships, at what cost? Seriously. If I had to choose between my, my kid getting a college athletic scholarship or paying full freight, but they love Jesus, they are shaped and formed by him, and they want to live on his mission, I'll pay full freight every time. Every time. Because that's actually what matters. And I love sports. And I played college sports. And they're not the enemy. But maybe they're one of those things that maybe numb our soul to what really matters. You know what? I want you guys to travel. I do. See the world that God has made. This summer, like, you got to take advantage of summer. But if taking advantage of summer means a three-month hiatus... It's hard to be meaningfully involved in the mission of Jesus Christ. Some of you guys are thinking at this point, okay, Pastor Kyle, go back on sabbatical and come back when you're not cranky anymore. <laughs> I, I say this because I really do love you. And you know what? I am generally encouraged. We've been through a lot in the last few years, but I think the best years are still to come. And, it, and if you're anything like me, sometimes you just need to wake up and to be reminded of what really matters and to be encouraged, and sometimes to be rebuked and exhorted so that we make the main thing the main thing, so that we live with a sense of urgency and intentionality, because here is the good news. God will finish the work that he started in you, and God will do the work in us that he has promised to do. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Let's pray. God, thank you for this encouragement. Lord, I pray that if my tone or demeanor was off in any way and took the focus off what you have done, I pray that it would just land on deaf ears. But God, if you want to stir something in us today, we just say, go and do it. Would you fill us with a sense of urgency, expectation, and intentionality that we might live lives together and as individuals that reflect your new kingdom reality. Thank you, Jesus, that it doesn't depend upon our performance, but it depends upon what you have done and what you promised to continue to give us. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.